0: You're listening to West Virginia Week, a regular podcast from West Virginia Public Broadcasting that looks back at the major stories of the week. I'm your host this week, Liz McCormick. The West Virginia Legislative Session is in full swing, and lawmakers have been considering a number of pieces of legislation, from education, jobs, energy, hunger, and more. We'll listen back to a few of our conversations with our guests this week from our program, The Legislature Today. Also, we'll hear from a man who recently arrived in Morgantown from the front lines in Ukraine. Let's jump right in with a few short news stories. The West Virginia House Committee on Education spent the better part of a two-hour meeting Wednesday discussing two bills. One would restrict bathroom use in schools based on sex. Chris Schultz has more.
1: Bills restricting the use of school facilities by transgender students, namely bathrooms and locker rooms, have gained popularity across the country in recent years. House Bill 4806 would limit public school students to use multiple occupancy restrooms or changing areas within schools to the gender that the students were assigned at birth. Minority Chair Delegate Mike Pushkin, a Democrat from Kanawha County, called the bill a solution in search of a problem. He warned the bill had the potential to harm children.
0: And actually,
2: West Virginia has a fairly high percentage of children who identify as, uh, as transgender.
3: And this will harm them.
2: They are the ones who are more likely uh, to get bullied in a public restroom.
1: The committee voted to recommend the bill to the House with a referral to the Committee on Judiciary. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown.
0: Federal agents say a major multi-state drug trafficking operation based in the eastern panhandle is now terminated. Randy Yohe reports.
3: 82 people have been indicted by a federal grand jury for a drug trafficking operation that distributed fentanyl, methamphetamine, and cocaine in the eastern panhandle. Following the large-scale arrest operation in West Virginia, Virginia, and Maryland, 11 of the 82 defendants are still at large. In a press release, the U.S. Attorney's Office notes that drug ring leaders supplied others with large quantities of fentanyl capsules and powder for redistribution in Berkeley and Jefferson counties. The investigation yielded 10 kilograms, or 22 pounds, of fentanyl, along with cocaine, methamphetamine, firearms, and hundreds of thousands of dollars in assets. The ongoing collaborative investigating effort involves dozens of federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Randy Yoe in Charleston.
0: West Virginia has some of the worst electricity reliability in the country, according to federal data. Curtis Tate has the story.
2: West Virginia has the most frequent power interruptions except for three states. And it has the longest power interruptions of any state but one. That's according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration's annual electric power industry report. West Virginians experienced an average of nearly three interruptions a year in 2022 and an average duration of more than 15 hours. The U.S. average was 1.4 outages and 5.6 hours. Most of those interruptions were not during major weather events, such as December 2022's Winter Storm Elliott when temperatures plunged into the single digits and below zero. Only Florida, with two major hurricanes in 2022, had outages with a longer average duration. Alaska, Tennessee, and Maine had more annual power interruptions. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston.
0: The city of Wheeling has agreed to temporarily suspend its urban camping ban. Chris Schultz has more.
1: The American Civil Liberties Union of West Virginia has dismissed their suit against the city of Wheeling after the city agreed to exempt a camping site from the urban camping ban that went into effect this year. The ordinance bans camping on public property in the city, punishable by a fine of up to $500. City workers cleared an encampment behind the Nelson Jordan Center last week. The city will now allow people experiencing homelessness to erect camps near the Catholic Charities Community Center and will also temporarily pause enforcement of the ordinance to give people time to move their belongings to the exempted site. In a press release, ACLU West Virginia Legal Director Aubrey Sparks said she and others, quote, hope the city will work with service providers and advocates on solutions that are not just constitutional but also humane, practical, and compassionate. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown.
0: Newly secured federal funding aims to bolster rural water infrastructure for two West Virginia cities. Jack Walker has the story. Rural communities in Marion and Jackson counties will soon receive water system upgrades. That's thanks to a new $3.2
4: million investment from the Environmental Protection Agency. The federal agency is funding infrastructure projects for the communities of Mannington and Ripley. Specifically, these funds will help upgrade the city's wastewater treatment plants and water meters. Water infrastructure in West Virginia has long struggled due to age, a lack of investment, and funding issues tied to population decline. These conditions have jeopardized some rural communities' access to drinking water and wastewater services. But in recent years, millions of federal dollars have gone toward regional water projects. State officials hope this can improve water access for West Virginia's rural communities. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Jack Walker in Charleston.
0: You're listening to West Virginia Week, and now some of our top feature stories from the past week. Dozens, if not hundreds, of bills have been introduced in the West Virginia Legislature this session that involve education. Randy Yohe spoke with Senate Education Chair Senator Amy Grady and Teacher Delegate Jeff Stevens about what some of those bills mean for public education in West Virginia.
3: Let's start with, uh, I guess the elephant in the room is discipline, school discipline. been talked about a lot. Senator Grady, I'll start with you. There were some bills passed last year that were supposed to deal with the problem. It sounds like they're not not working and you may have something new to offer. So first of all, uh, how serious is the problem from what you see and hear?
5: the problem is serious. and The bill we passed last year, Randy, was um, House Bill 2890, and it dealt with 6th through 12th grade. And so what we're looking at is changing that one a little bit because it's not working the way it is, but also adding something for K-5 because we're seeing kids at a younger age coming in. And I'm not talking about what we used to see when I was growing up and probably Delegate Stevens, you know, just an ornery kid. We're not talking about that. We're talking about kids who are assaulting, throwing uh, computers across the room, um, screaming, having emotional outbursts that's causing an unsafe environment for the other students in the classroom. You're seeing that in kindergartners, first graders, second graders, and teachers are burnt out and they feel like their hands are tied. In what other profession can we say that somebody is expected to be assaulted and be okay with it? None, but as teachers, every day. You know, you could be assaulted by a student, a 10-year-old, a nine-year-old, and just have to deal with it and move on, and that's not okay.
3: So what's the core of what we can do to help teachers uh, solve that problem?
5: A lot of teachers feel like they don't have the support of administration, and a lot of administrators feel like, well, you know, there's a push not to expel kids from school, not to suspend kids from school, because that's not proven to work, right? So we've got to find a way where we're showing compassion for kids that because they're doing this for a reason. You know, when you're that young of an age, you have that's an emotional issue. Probably comes from. emotional trauma at home probably parts of the drug epidemic I'm sure we're seeing a lot of that right now and these kids can't regulate their feelings and so we have to teach them how to do that but we also have to make sure we're protecting teachers and we're also protecting the students that are in that classroom that are coming to learn and it's 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 a it's a fine line uh, showing compassion but also putting some teeth to discipline um, and I'm trying to perfect a bill I don't know that it'll get there but i that's my goal.
3: It's it's uh, There's a lot to it. All you can see it was eighth graders. You I mean, you think about eighth graders, you get precocious, maybe a little wild there. You know, I can try to remember when I was in eighth grade. Yeah. But uh, you say you have a fairly mellow school. Uh, we do. Uh, and I think that
6: stems from a lot of different things. I think it stems from the kids that we get. Uh, I think we're, we're lucky enough to be in a good community. Uh, a lot of parent involvement. Uh, I think that that's key. Um, and, you know, I know throughout the state with, uh, you know, with our single parent homes and maybe kids, kids that don't go home to a regular home uh, on a regular basis, uh, they need a support program. Because uh, like Senator Grady said, if this is starting at like kindergarten or first grade, that is not something that they want to do. That's something that either they see on a regular basis or uh, that's all they know. And and I think maybe starting with uh, like behavior uh, analysis and getting to the root of the problem. Because I I think a kindergartner or first grader doesn't want to promote violence. That's not what they're trying to do, but that's what they see. and I think it starts there at the younger ages. I know that you said they had something for sixth to 12th grade, but sometimes once they get to sixth grade, it's really tough to break some of those habits and, and some of those things that they do. Uh, I think, and starting at the younger age, I think that, that that's great and something that we should do. Um, but, you know, as far as expulsion or as far as, you know, out of school suspensions, sometimes that, that's good, but sometimes that's putting them back in an environment that, that's where they're learning those things. So we have to come up with an idea or a plan to say, we're going to provide support for these kids. Because that's what we're there for. I mean, that, that's, you know, now we're educating kids, but we have to be there to support them as well. Um, and I think that's something we need to look at.
3: So let's go back to the challenge of crafting the bill. The challenge, I think, is probably the operative word. Who are you listening to? Who are you talking to? Uh, who do you have involved?
5: Oh, Randy, I've been listening and talking to lots of people, I'm starting with teachers, number one, uh, because the same as delegate Stevens here my, my school we don't have a lot of discipline problems because we're very small rural school same reasons uh, but I'm listening to other teachers who I, I've talked to teachers that have been teaching for 25 plus years and they're ready to quit and it's because of the discipline it's because of the issues um, and they and then they say they have supportive administrators but a lot of times their administrators want feel like they can love a kid so much that it'll change the behaviors you know we can show them so much love here because they don't get it at home that it's going to change the behavior and sometimes that helps and we definitely want to love kids but But sometimes it doesn't have any bearing whatsoever, you know, so we've got to think of a way. There are a lot of counties that have behavioral intervention programs that are working really well. They're expensive. You know, they are, they're expensive. So I've been exploring ways that we can use that opioid settlement money to help encourage counties to set those up in their county if they don't already have one. Um, because even though they're, they're expensive to operate, think about the amount of money you're saving in the long run on that student, especially when they become an adult and they still have these problems. So that those programs can teach them how to um, basically rehabilitate them, you know, teach them how to control their emotions, teach them what they need to know and so they can operate well in a regular classroom.
0: That was Senate Education Chair Senator Amy Grady and Delegate Jeff Stevens speaking with Randy Yowie on the legislature today. To hear the rest of this interview, visit our website, wvpublic.org. And tune into the legislature today, every weeknight at six. Tuesday was facing Hunger Day at the Capitol. Both major food banks in the state were joined by local food pantries to promote legislative priorities. According to the USDA, more than one in four children are food insecure in the United States. In West Virginia and Kentucky, at least 78,800 seniors are living in poverty. To continue this discussion, Brianna Heaney invited Cindy Kirkhart, the Chief Executive Officer of the Facing Hunger Food Bank, and Senator Mike Wolfell, the Senate Minority Leader from Cabell County, to help us better understand the scope of the problem.
5: What are some actions that the legislature is doing and could do to address child
7: hunger? Well, Bri, such an important topic, and I know the senator has been long supporting our hunger relief efforts at Facing Hunger. In our service area, one in four children suffer from hunger. We're serving 5,000 children a week with backpacks throughout our 12 county service area. So I think we're all committed to how can we gather resources to lift everyone out of poverty, the families and then the children. But we understand that in order to really overcome multi-generational poverty, We've got to feed our kids and let them get an education. So the legislature, since 2018 really, has focused on child hunger through supporting backpack programming and funds through the Department of Education and certainly supporting the food banks so that we can take those resources and um, attack as many kids as, as we can and resolve hunger for them.
5: Coming out of the Senate, coming out of the legislature, What are some um, actions that are being taken to address child hunger in the state?
8: Well, I happen to be from Huntington also, and where I live, there are food options through churches and community organizations, teachers. Um, Our kids are in pretty good shape, but as a state, we're 34% higher. We have a higher rate of childhood hunger than the rest of the country. Um, And sadly, in many counties, the options for, for example, summer feeding are not available. So I have a bill that I ran uh, through the Senate last year and and, uh, wrote again this year, which would require each Board of Education to assess what hunger needs are being met or not being met in their county. It doesn't cost anything. It doesn't require them to feed children. Uh, But until we assess what's out there, and what counties or areas are deficient, we can't really attack the problem. Uh, sadly, last session, nobody in the House bothered to take that bill up. It just died. It was never even considered. So, same bill went over there the very first day of this session. Uh, ideal language. And I'm, I'm hopeful that the House of Delegates will see childhood hunger as a priority and make sure that we take this step toward ensuring that all kids in our state have something to eat.
5: I'll ask you, um, Sydney, what are some of the headwinds to addressing child hunger in the state?
7: Well, I will tell you, in spite of our best efforts, we are blessed with kids that are very bright and if they have an idea about where they can get food where they can get resources they're going to go to those if they have to ride a four-wheeler there if they have to hitchhike there Um, so i think it's really important that we meet these kids where they are so to the senator's point really finding out what are the barriers you know if people have to travel 15 miles in to a local school that may right. have summer feeding. Right. We're asking them to make a really hard decision about do I use that fuel for this, you know, or do I take care of the rest of my family. So I think that the efforts of the senator and certainly the legislature to let's get food to kids regardless of what it takes. Let's assess the landscape because West Virginia clearly has transportation challenges. So let's meet those kids who need us to act on their behalf and figure out how they get there.
8: We also have a fair number of what I'll call food deserts in the state. We have places where there's not a grocery store readily available to people. Um, And again, with the opioid tsunami that our state is facing, child poverty is at an all-time high our child poverty rate in this state is 25 percent and rising. Uh, So, the least we can do as a government, as a legislature, as a state is to put nutrition in the bodies of those children. Uh, And You know, we have done some things in the past, but there's still so many places that I will consider a food desert where children just aren't able to secure the nutrition and it's not being provided by their extended family or whoever may be supervising them during those summer months, sadly.
0: That was Cindy Kirkhart from the Facing Hunger Food Bank and Senator Mike Wolfel speaking with Brianna Heaney on the Legislature Today. New companies and new jobs are coming to West Virginia and with those jobs comes the need for workforce development and new sources of energy. On the legislature today, Curtis Tate spoke with Bill Bissett, the president of the West Virginia Manufacturers Association, and Dan Conant, founder and CEO of Solar Holler, about these issues.
2: Explain a little bit about about uh, what your, your specific
9: needs are in terms of workforce. Well, Curtis, thanks so much. And I'll tell you, it's a good time to be the head of the Western Union Manufacturers Association because there is so much going on and not just these new companies. When you look at Newcore, Berkshire Hathaway or Form Energy, you also have a lot of existing manufacturers. who I think story often doesn't get told and, you know, employ people every day, paychecks, tax revenue and produce products we need. So it's, it's a good story and a good story to tell, but especially right now with all the excitement. But again, like all opportunity challenges come with it. And one of those challenges is workforce. But I think what you're seeing currently, you know, under the gold dome and in business circles is a question of what can we do to to remove the impediments to bring people to the workforce? And whether they're a single parent, whether someone's been through uh, substance abuse treatment, uh, whether it's someone who just hasn't had that mentor in their lives in the nature of gainful employment, how do we reach out, especially in the rural areas, and help these people find their way to gainful employment? And, you know, I think that's noble work and important work, but it's also kind of, you know, falling through the commitment we've made to these new employers. Uh, Dan, I think one of the things that you do as Solar Hauler is a, a version of
2: workforce development in terms of training, uh, especially uh, out of work, uh, people from the mining
4: industry to become solo installers. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about how that's going? Yeah, it's. It's been a crazy ride and it's a lot of fun. Uh, we this past year we launched an apprenticeship program with Wayne County Schools where we're working with seniors in uh, seniors at Wayne High School and Spring Valley High School uh, who are going through their um, uh, through their trade program learning electrical drafting you know construction four days a week and one day a week they're learning on the job with us as paid members of our crews and you know that's a really important. Fork in someone's life the the end of high school when you can either move away from West Virginia and move out to Columbus or Pittsburgh or you know uh, Just move out of state or if you're given the opportunity to stay close to home So that's that's the area we've really chosen to focus on in the past year is how do we keep graduating seniors? At home close to family and give them an entry into the workforce. It's been incredible so far uh, we've had uh, 10 folks go through our apprenticeship program in the past year and out of those eight are staying in state and, and signing on full time with us uh, to to remain after high school. Uh, so, you know, small numbers but really meaningful for a company of 100 folks too that's trying to grow rapidly. Well, I'm glad
2: you mentioned Wayne County because uh, not too long ago um, the school system there entered into a power purchase agreement uh, that, that involves solar, and I uh, would imagine some some uh, it, it, it creates some jobs. Could you? Say yeah. a little bit more about uh,
4: yeah. what's happening there. We're really excited for this um, for this deal with Wayne County Schools. Two years ago, the legislature legalized power purchase agreements, which gives uh, you know businesses and nonprofits and municipalities the opportunity to buy power uh, from a solar system without having to worry about the upfront cost, without having to worry about the maintenance. Uh, and so we uh, we want to bid to. Install solar on every single school in Wayne County, all uh, 18, all 18 available rooftops. And uh, Solar Howard is going to be paying for the full upfront investment, which is about 14 million dollars. Uh, and we're going to be selling the electricity to uh, to the schools. Uh, we're going to be able to reduce their annual bills enough to pay for three teachers forever. Uh, it's $150,000 a year in savings between the cost of the solar and what they would have been paying AEP for that same amount of power. And uh, in the process, we're going to be able to put the, uh, give all of our trainees, apprentices coming out of the Wayne County Schools a uh, chance to learn on the job on their own school as they're as they're helping to solarize their own, their own high school and elementary school. Uh,
2: Well I think one important issue for uh, manufacturers is the cost of energy. Mm -hmm. Um, What what is your position in terms of what the state needs to do to make energy more affordable
9: for for manufacturers and what's the ideal way to achieve that? I think what you're looking at right now is a real time of change, I think, in West Virginia. I think, you know, as it's often said, we're always gonna be an energy state, but the nature of that's gonna change. When you look at the, you know, removing the nuclear moratorium, whether you look at you know, the development of Solar Holler, what Dan's doing, whether you look at the new companies coming in viewing electricity different, but I would say we're all uh, focused on the cost of everything, including electricity, but one of the things I hope to do with the manufacturers is reconnect us with the means of production, and by that I mean we don't know where where our food comes from, we don't know where products are from, we, we don't know where electricity comes from. But the more I hope we can inform that discussion, and I know I'm kind of, you know, cracking a joke here, depoliticize the nature of energy policy, we can actually get to, you know, what is the cost, what's the reliability, what's the scope of that production, and have real substantive discussions about it, especially when you look 10, 20, 30 years
0: in the future. That was Bill Bissett and Dan Conant speaking with Curtis Tate. For our final story in this episode, we step away from the state house in Charleston and take a trip to Morgantown. In February 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine, sparking a new wave of fighting in a conflict that stretches back at least a decade. As that fighting enters its third year, a small community of Ukrainians formed around West Virginia University recently came together to honor one of the war's frontline veterans. Chris Schultz has the story.
1: On a recent Friday night, a small gathering of about five families got together in the community center of an apartment complex in Morgantown. Young women wear flower crowns with ribbons cascading off of them. Intermixed with English, you can also hear snippets of Ukrainian. The group has gathered to show their appreciation to Adia Benyuda, who recently arrived from the front lines in Ukraine. Originally from the UK, Benyuda moved to Israel in the 90s, where he served as a police officer until the outbreak of the war in Ukraine. Barring a visit to Israel at the outbreak of that country's war against Hamas, Benyuda has been on the front lines for almost two years and said it was time for a
3: break. They just invited me to come to Morgantown. I, I told them that I needed time to rest from the war, and they, just, they asked me to come over.
1: He says he appreciates the calm of West Virginia, although he was a little taken aback to find himself among Ukrainians so far from the front lines.
3: I knew I was coming to Morgantown, but I didn't expect like an evening like this, meeting with uh, fellow Ukrainians. It's a nice feeling that uh, you feel wanted, but being in the center of attention is is hard for me. And my body's here, but my mind is still back in Ukraine fighting. So it's
1: it's hard for me. For Ukrainians living in Morgantown like Valeria Gritsenko, Benuda is a glimpse into the military reality of the war
10: I haven't heard directly military perspective so um, this has been very um, useful to, for me to hear that the, the war is is going <laughs> okay it's not it's not easy it's very tough and it's very difficult and there are still problems um, with weapon supplies but uh, morale is high and everyone is determined to win.
1: Gritsenko is an assistant professor of biomedical engineering at WVU. Almost all of the members of the small Ukrainian community were attracted to Morgantown by the university. Originally from the city of Kharkiv in northeastern Ukraine, near the Russian border, Gritsenko has lived in Morgantown for more than 10 years. She says she gets more of the civilian perspective on the conflict from her friends and family when she can.
10: They are getting tired of the war, I, I, I hear, especially in this sort of holiday season when we last talked to our friends uh, um, in Ukraine. They just their nerves are very <laughs> frazzled by all the sirens and bombings, and uh, they're just hoping that the war will end sooner rather than later, but they have no doubt that they will win.
1: Gritsenko's husband, Sergei Yakovenko, likened Benyuda to a medieval knight and said it was amazing to meet someone dedicated to defending his home country. Yakovenko hopes his work at the university with biomedical research into new prostheses will help recovery efforts. But he and others need the war to end first. Different types of prosthetics that would be able to communicate with the nervous system and prosthetic device and enable more really kind of intuitive control. It's a problem not only in Ukraine but Just as much of a problem for our veterans who don't have
4: an adequate solution for for their disability.
1: There is a growing frustration that international attention has lost focus on the Ukrainian conflict as it stretches into another year and new issues arise. Yakovenko's parents, Mikhail and Vera, relocated to Morgantown a few months after the war. He says their experience and his struggle to get them out of the country has left him dealing with post-traumatic stress.
11: It's difficult to resolve. It's
1: something that we will have to deal with, with the whole nation of Ukrainians and people who were exposed to this war. Um, but my parents managed to get out. With help from Kretchenko, Vera explains that despite the distance and being in the U.S. for almost two years, her thoughts and her life are still in Ukraine. Here, we live our life in Ukraine vicariously through the Internet. We just keep watching for everything, all the events that are happening over there, especially in the holiday times. We saw that the 138 buildings were destroyed in the big last bombardment in Kharkiv, and we worry about all the people that are left without a roof over their head in winter. Mikhail adds that he finds it very hard to wait out the war and live with the constant pressure. I would really like it to be over sooner rather than later, and ask the Americans who support Ukraine to continue supporting Ukraine, because Putin will not stop at Ukraine, and if he's allowed to win there, he will just roll over other countries." Although not Ukrainian, Julia Kazajeva has integrated into the small local community. She was previously a journalist in Russia, but unwilling to support the war effort, she fled with her family in 2022.
11: I just met several people who helped me, and it was opportunity opened right in Morgantown. But I really had uh, another opportunities to get to Washington, for example. But um, those moments, I wanted to have something peaceful and really quiet. And Morgantown is a blessed place we found.
1: Like Benyuda, Kazajeva is grateful for that peace. But she and the rest of this small community live with the daily reminders that their friends and family back in Ukraine and Russia live a very different reality. Their biggest concern is that if Ukraine falls, that will only be the beginning of a broader international conflict.
11: What I keep repeating to my friends over here, if we stop provide weapon to Ukraine, Russian soldiers will go further. They will go to Lithuania, Poland, even Germany. I know Russian culture. I know how these people think from inside. They will not stop.
1: Benyuda plans to continue traveling before returning to fight in a few weeks. In February, it will be three years since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine. And the group that came out to honor Benyuda are left wondering what will face him when he returns to the front lines and what fate has in store for their homeland. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown.
0: That's it for West Virginia Week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you back here next week. As always, you can see these stories and more at wvpublic.org. I'm Liz McCormick.